Well, good morning on this uh, Memorial Day weekend as uh, we look for opportunities to uh, just remember people that, that have really sacrificed their lives on, on behalf of us so that we can enjoy freedom. Uh, also, it's an opportunity for us to remember the one who really set the example of greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And so we have that opportunity just to uh, just reflect on true love is that which gives and gives sacrificially and gives to the greatest need in people's lives. Well, this morning, uh, what I want to do, uh, make an announcement. I don't know if you had, were aware of this, but Al Gore did not invent the internet. You know, the internet uh, actually was in the first century. How many believe that? Well, Tony does. <laughs> but anyway, I, I thought I'd give an internet announcement from the first century in Rome. And, and, and here was the, the head uh, paragraph on an alarming uh, week or so that had happened in the city of Rome. It is the summer of AD 64. For nine days, a huge fire raged in the city of Rome. Flames spread rapidly through the city's narrow streets and the tightly bunched wooden tenements crowded with people of all ages. And as they uh, looked at that experience, they didn't probably read about it on the internet or see it on the internet. They were, they were marked that that which was the greatest city in the world had now been devastated by fires. Now, that was uh, maybe the, the, the news flash that everyone was fully aware of. But there was editorials being written about, well, what caused all this? And because it was well-known you know, desire to be known as a great builder. Nero was, was really fingered as the one who started all the fires. In fact, uh, the rumor had it that as the, as the people rushed to somehow save their homes, uh, the soldiers not only were preventing them from doing that, they were starting additional fires. And so there was a whole lot of emotional controversy in the city. And of course, politically, that never happens in a nation, right? And what a clever politician will do, he will divert the attention from himself to others to blame. And this is what Nero did in AD 64 and the surrounding months and years from that. And what he did is he looked at some people that maybe could be blame for what had happened and maybe they were people that weren't particularly popular at that time and so he, he drew his attention to those individuals that were believing that somehow this man named Jesus was really the one that everyone ought to follow. In fact, in a world in which the challenge was for everyone to believe that Caesar is Lord, they had the audacity to believe that Jesus is Lord and, and they would not be, be persuaded to deny the Lordship of Jesus. And, and then as they looked at this small group of people, at least at that point, they began to recognize that they also were related to some other people that they didn't particularly have the highest opinion on, uh, of, and that was the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. Uh, Anti-Semitism has been alive and well uh, for centuries. And so they figured well, we, we, we can eliminate and point the blame at not only this new sect, uh, religious sect, the, the, the believers in Jesus, but we can also maybe take out some Jewish people at the same time. And, and then as they looked at that, they began to look at some of the things they taught and they said, well, look, at these are horrible people. I mean, we hear reports that when they gather together, they eat flesh and drink blood. 
And they were thinking about the community experience and how that really pictured of early cannibalism. And maybe we ought to get rid of that group of people that are going to somehow ruin our, our public life. And then they thought about some other things they did. They, they would often gather together and they would give each other a holy kiss. Everybody would give each other a holy kiss. So I thought just for application, whether you're online or whether you're here, just turn the person next to you and give you a, okay, no. Uh, you know. And they're thinking, what in the world's going on here? I mean, this is going to pervert our young people and, and they're going to come to church and think, what is this all about? And, and so they began to think this is uncontrolled lust as people came together. And so over and over, they began to look at all these things and they're saying, this, this, is, this is not something that would be surprised if they decide to somehow try to overthrow Rome by burning all of our buildings. And then Nero would take this and he would take it to the next level. He would take these Christians and he would, for some, he would crucify them just like he did, or just like Rome did for Jesus. And then some, he would, he would tie or, or, or they would take animal skins and wrap them in animal skins. And just for fun, they, they would watch other animals devour these, these beings that looked like animals that they usually would uh, predate on. And, 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 and so all this was happening in terms of what was going to be experienced by God's people. And as Peter writes this, probably around AD 64, all this has not particularly happened, but it was the, the, the volume of persecution was going to be just multiplied beyond imagination. In fact, one of the things that Nero would do for fun, he would take Christians and put them on a stake and wax them and then light them on fire. And they would be the torches for his beautiful gardens when he'd had garden parties. Now, with this is a backdrop, and with Peter knowing this is about to happen, it was happening closer to Rome, and now it was going to spread throughout the Roman Empire, he was preparing God's people for what was going to happen next. Now, this was not a sales pitch for those who hadn't made that, that step of faith to believe in Jesus. How many want to be tortured? Become a Christian. How many want to be lit on fire? Become a Christian. How many want to be slandered for everything you're doing? Become a Christian. Uh, the sales pitch for following Jesus has always been this, the same. We are a mess. We are a mess on the inside. And, and Jesus is the only one who can clean up our mess. And if we have any hope for not only this life, but for the life to come, we need to examine Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and what he can do in our lives. But for those that already come to that place where they had followed Jesus, he, he knew they were, they were going to be getting to think, well, did, did I really sign up for this? Or even more than that, they might be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't understand what I've been taught. I've been taught that when I come to know Jesus, I'm going to have an abundant life. Well, this is a pretty busy life, but this is not the abundance I signed up for. When I became a Christian, I, I, I was promised that I would have a peace much beyond what the world could give. It's a peace that Jesus could have and, and, and give to me, or Jesus has and can give to me. Well, this doesn't sound like peace to me. And so what Peter was doing is what we all need to do is be prepared for what, what's going to happen next and to, to really recognize that maybe some of the things we believe about what it means to follow Jesus aren't exactly what Jesus taught and his disciples taught. In fact, from the very beginning, he said, look at it, as you come to me, there, there isn't anything better than coming to me, but you need to count the cost. And the cost might be way beyond you could even imagine. 
And, and so this morning, what I want to do is we pick up on this theme that is throughout this particular letter that Paul, that Peter writes to these aliens, strangers in a world that's not their home. He, he wants, again, to prepare them for what is going to happen, what's going to happen next. And I've entitled the message this morning, Is It Getting Hot in Here? Now, for the last number of months, with having every door open uh, and being on the cooler side of our of our beautiful weather in Southern California. Sometimes it's been a little bit cool in here, right? Uh, but there's kind of a time when the, the, the heat's going to rise a little bit temperature-wise. And, and, and we get used to that. We get realized the summer months are a lot hot, hotter than the winter months. But we need to realize that temperature is not just related to physical temperature. There is a temperature in terms of the challenges of life. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, and is we're going to look at 12 verses, and, and uh, some of you can just relax. I'm not going to try to teach the whole Bible like I did last week and everything about the, the end times. I'm, I'm going to look at, we're just going to look at eight verses, and I know I should only have three points. I'm going to break the, that rule as well. We're going to have six, but, but these are just bullet points as Peter, again, just to prepare them for all that they get to experience in its, in its glory, but also in its challenge. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. You're not going to have to turn around, uh, turn to a lot of passages. I'm going to try to just explain the text that we're looking at. But in, in 1 Peter, we have Peter picking up this theme again about uh, what it means to walk with Jesus and what we ought to be aware of and doing it well. And so as we think about, is it getting hot in here? I'm going to try to answer this simple question. What do you do when the temperature rises? Now, for some of us, if it's physical temperature rising, we sit in front of the air conditioner unit or we, we go to any place where there's water, whether it's the beach or someone's pool or whatever it might be, and we just try to do whatever we can to cool off. But there are other things that happen in life where we, we need to have another source of refreshment, another source of hope in, in the midst of a world that we can't control, though God is in control and sometimes we wonder why is he allowing these things to happen. What do we do? When we face life, that isn't exactly how we had anticipated it to be. Well, let's look at it this morning. First of all, I want to simply say this. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when the temperature rises. Don't be surprised when things in life get a little hotter than you had wanted them to be. And all these points are in the negative. Don't, 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 don't. But I thought some people might think I'm a negative person. So uh, I, I, there is a corresponding positive statement as well. Don't be surprised, be prepared. Well, let's look at verse 12 as we look at what Paul, what Peter, I keep wanting to say Paul, Peter writes to the, those who are experiencing it to a certain level then, but we're going to experience the rising of the temperature of, of suffering in their lives. Beloved. Now what pastors are known for as they look at every word and then want to say everything about that one word. But you know, as he, as he begins this, he, he does begin with a, a term of endearment. He says, beloved, and it's a, a form of the word agape, agape toss, okay? And he, a toy. He's saying, he said, look, I'm speaking to you because I really love you, okay? I, I'm not trying to scare you. I, I'm not trying to give you just bad news. I, I'm giving this because I love you and care about you. Beloved, do not be, what? Surprised. So if, you wonder, if you're wondering where I got my first point, it's right there, right? Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. So if you wonder where I got the idea, it's, it's getting hot in here. It's 
right here, right? There's, a, there's an ordeal that you're going to experience, and it's going to be fiery, which means it could be a little painful. The fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. So very simply, and really I, I'm not going to say anything particularly profound today, as we look about life is that no matter what happens, and, and life happens. Have you, have you discovered that? Life happens. I mean, it just happens. If I were to take a rabbit trail, I would tell you what happened to me this weekend, but I'm not, okay? I'm thinking, why did that happen, okay? It, it, but don't be surprised when strange things happen. Now, the interesting thing about that, which is maybe more interesting to me than anybody else here, but it, is the word for strange and surprise is actually comes from the same root word. When, when we are surprised, it's because something strange has happened. It's the exact word. Don't be surprised when a surprising thing happens. And what he was saying here again is that, is that you have expectations. Anybody go through life with expectations? I mean, I'm, that's probably one of the things that just bothers me more than anything else. I have certain expectations and they aren't always fulfilled. And whether it's my own life or the people around me or circumstances or whatever. And I, I don't know why I'm surprised with some of the things that if I were just to think about a little bit more about it, why am I surprised? Because... This is a pattern, right? And what are you saying here? There is a certain pattern that we ought to expect because quite frankly, God told us to expect that. I found a verse in 1 John 3.13. It says, do not be surprised, which is our first point. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. So in America, and we are, we are celebrating Memorial Day weekend, and, and we really believe that we have been a blessing to so many other countries and nations. I mean, we, we struggled to go into World War II because that's their problem, right? We don't want to, we don't want to mess with it. They, they got to fight their own wars, right? But we went in and did all kinds of things, and in many ways, we did rescue all of Europe during World War II. But, but as we think about that, uh, we would think that why, why wouldn't everybody in the world, what, love us, right? But what do you often see on billboards and placards and verbal expressions is that they hate us, right? Now, there's a variety of reasons. Some of them are good reasons why they hate us and some are bad reasons why they hate us. But as we think about as a Christian, we, we should not be surprised when what we stand for is not always popular, so when we take a stand that the Jesus is the only way, we shouldn't be surprised. When we hold on to certain moral commitments that the life in the womb is precious, we shouldn't be surprised by that. When we believe that when everything came into being in terms of a creator God, how many sexes did he create? He only created two of them. Now, we need to show love to everyone who disagrees with where we stand on moral issues. But when the Bible is clear that God's people are clear and people who can't understand our perspective, they're not going to be pleased with the stance we take, no matter how loving we take them. And so we should not be surprised. And we're going to be tested in our faith. Now, particularly here and throughout the main section of this passage, he, he's going to talk about suffering or the fiery ordeal or the testing of your faith fundamentally because you've taken a stand for Jesus. 
But there's other ways to suffer, right? There are other ways that can, you know, cause your life to be filled with questions and frustration. And he'll talk a little bit about that. But as we take a stand for Jesus, don't be surprised, as John said in his little letter, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Because they hated who? They hated Jesus. Well, let's move on because I only have so much time. So then he goes on and says this, verse 13. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of the glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Now, now sometimes the writers, and this is true of Paul as well as Peter, they, they write in these complicated sentences and, you know, and the, all these clauses or phrases, ma, uh, uh, they, they contribute to the meaning of the phrase right before. And you're thinking, wait, what are you talking about? Okay, I get it. Don't be surprised that you're going to get tested. But now you're saying, oh, oh by the way, the degree which you suffer, in fact, the more you suffer, quite frankly, I, I, I would rather suffer less than more. Anybody want to disagree with that? He said, but if you, if you suffer for a whole lot, then you ought to, what's the word here? Rejoice. And I was supposed to say my point before I went to the passage, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a be, be a better preacher in my last days, all right? Don't lose your joy. Okay, don't be surprised and don't lose your joy. Okay, well, how do you not lose your joy? Well, one, counterintuitive, when you suffer more, that might be an opportunity to say, well, where is the source of my joy? My source of my joy is not in my circumstances. And the only way that you don't lose your joy, or to put it in a positive way, be joyful. That wasn't very creative. But if you don't lose your joy, is always remember, where is your source of joy? You know, when things go wrong, I, 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 I'm not particularly joyful about that. I, I guess I'm going to share with you a little bit. I was, I was treeing a hedge this, this, on Saturday. And, I, and normally... Alice doesn't trust me with power tools, but I, you know, I had a power tool, all right? Then it was an electric hedger, and I was hedging something, and um, I, I have a, I have a I'll, I'll confess another sin, I have a problem with multitasking, so I'm listening to a podcast, I am, I am hedging, I'm hedging my hedge, or whatever you call that, and um, I, I've, and all of a sudden, my hedger hit my power cord, okay? Now, you're, and it blew out something as well, that was another thing that got get, but but the thing, well, since you gave me such a groan, I just want to confess this as well. I've done this multiple times. Okay. <laughs> you would think I would learn, right? All right. Now, the biggest problem, of course, the only person I could blame was myself, all right? But, but what he's saying here is, you know, I, I was just, you know, that was not one of my expectations that day. And then the other thing that always irks me is I, you, you, you ever frame jobs, you, you want to give so much time for that job because you want to get on to some other jobs or go out and do something fun? Well, that just delayed my day quite a bit, repairing all that, okay? Now, what he's saying here is, he's not saying you ought to be, you ought to have a silly grin when, when you're suffering, but when, again, you recognize when you suffer for Christ because you took a stand for Christ, then it drives you to the place where you say, my source of joy is in Jesus and not my circumstances. He, he is the one who never leaves me. He is the one who always loves me and covers my multitude of sins. He is the one who always gives me hope in the midst of things going wrong. He is the one who gives me a, a better perspective on life of what, what is, is important, what's really not important. And then he says, oh, oh, by the way, when you do that, 
you're going to be able to look forward to that time when you see Jesus face to face. No matter how much uh, you rejoice in the Lord now, you're going to rejoice in the Lord so much more when you see him face to face. And there's a lot of different ways we could try to emphasize that and, and play with that. But when we rejoice in our sufferings for Jesus, we, we do it because we recognize that our union is with him. That when, when they, whomever that they would be, would, would revile us in ways that would cause us to experience shame, it, it, it really is that which mirrors what, what happened to Jesus, doesn't it? You know how we, all, we, we so easily identify with, with maybe teams that we really love following? So much so that when they're in the world championship where it's the World Series or the NBA playoffs or it's the Super Bowl or whatever and, and your team wins, what do you say? We won, right? And, and then when our team loses, we lost. And you're thinking, I didn't play one inning. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get on the field once. I didn't get one hit. I didn't make one tackle. But what we need to realize in our identification with Jesus is that we live this life in him and through him and for him. And we rejoice with just the privilege of being on that team. So what do you do when it gets, get, starts to get hot out there? What do you do when the temperature rises? Just make some simple action steps. One, don't be surprised. This, this ought to be expected. Number two is recognize that you don't lose your source of joy, which is Jesus in the midst, even when things uh, that you're identifying with him and it causes suffering. And, and then he goes on and he says in verse 14, these words. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, and, and that's what I was rereading, whether that was in verse 13 or verse 14. The, the word revile, it, it really has the idea of heaping insults on you. So, so when somehow people look at you in a, a not particularly positive way when they identify with you with all the the abuse that is happening in our culture and they're and, and really the, the person you don't want to be right now is a white evangelical christian all right now let me just be honest a lot of white evangelical christians have done a lot of foolish things and, and they have brought shame on the name of christ but every white evangelical christian has not caused all the suffering in the world right and as we think about that, we don't need to get overburdened by a personal abuse, whether it's in the public arena or on a personal level, because all we want to do is be known for what Jesus is known for. We want, we want people to know that only hope in life is finding life in him. And, and, and we, don't, we don't embrace all the sins of, of God's people throughout the ages. What we want to do is embrace our sin and be humble about our sin. And he says, do, do not, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And again, as I look at these things, well, what's the big point here? Well, this is, this is the point I want to linger on for my own life is, and not only don't be surprised when, when life doesn't go right and, or doesn't go well, don't lose your joy, but don't forget the work of the spirit. He, he says this. He says, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I, I'm sure 
any follower of Jesus at times wonders, you know, when you're going through life and you're really struggling and you, and you, you look up to God and, and, and you, if you're praying an honest prayer, say, God, God, where are you, right? What happened? I don't, I don't, I don't experience your presence at the moment. And what he's saying simply here, you're facing challenge now and you're going to face greater challenges then. I want you to recognize when these challenges, and I got very specific here, Peter, to them, when people throw insults on you, think of this as an opportunity to realize you are blessed. You have God's favor on your life. Doesn't mean your circumstances right now are favored, but you have the favor of God in your life. That's what it means to be blessed. And in the midst of that, I want you to understand the reason you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, some of them had read the Old Testament. Some of them kind of identify with this. And, and really what they had read or, or heard about, whether it was their, their people, uh, the Jewish nation, or where they were Gentiles that came to know Jesus, they'd, they'd heard about God's glory resting on God's people. Now, the most pronounced way that happened it was was in the tabernacle or or in the temple or in the ark and and it was it was like somehow the presence of God was so illuminating that people could not deny there's something supernatural that has has come and rested upon God's people and it's it's demonstrative and what he is saying here is, I want you to understand that when, when you are identifying with Jesus to such a degree that when you suffer, you don't think it's just you suffering, but you're sharing the sufferings of Christ, you recognize that the Spirit of God dwells within you and you have so identified with God that His glory, His presence is upon you because He's in you. Now, let me be honest. Most people, when they see me, don't see this glow like they saw in Moses, you know. Usually my halo is a little off, you know. I'm not, you know, it's not quite as straight as it should be. So I'm not saying it's going to be some kind of mystical glow here. But when you do walk with Jesus and you know you're being faithful in him and you're trusting in him and acknowledge that he lives within you and that he's, he's, he's resting within your life, then you recognize I've got a presence of supernatural intimacy with a God who just refreshes me and restores me when things aren't going well. So what do we do when it's starting to get hot in here, you know? When the tension begins to rise, well, number one, don't be surprised. Number two is don't lose your source of joy, which isn't Jesus. Thirdly, uh, don't, don't forget the work of the Spirit of God in your life because this is, this is not a natural experience to respond this way. It's only a work of God when we experience Him during difficult times. Then he writes another verse. We only got a few minutes, but we'll try to get some bullet points out of here. He, he says in verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler, or a person who can't use a power tool, all right? Uh, you know, basically what he's saying here, okay, I've been talking to you about the suffering or the challenge, you know, this fundamentally because you're a follower of Jesus, and, and, and people don't, they don't always like what Jesus said and what he stood for. 
and what he was calling people to live out. That's why they put him on the cross. If he had just spoken about the love of Jesus, he would never have put him put on the cross. He called out people's sin. He called out people to realize that it's not just what you do physically, but what you do in your heart. He, he talked about people who were religious on the outside, but were, they were just empty on the inside. And, and so as people hear the message of Jesus, sometimes they respond with eagerness because this is, this is what they've been longing for all their life and, and now someone has shared with them. And, but for others, it, they struggle with it. And we want to struggle with them, but there isn't always a popular conversation when you talk about Jesus with people. And really, I guess this is, this is almost a, a sidebar for, for Peter because he was talking about suffering because you identify with Jesus. And I said, don't be a murderer. You know, don't be a thief. And in some contexts in the Old Testament, those were capital offenses, particularly murder. But then he goes on and says, oh, and by, uh, by the way, uh, don't be an evildoer, which is an interesting word in the original language. It simply said, in any form of evil, don't do any of that kind of stuff. And then he, then he throws in something in case you didn't identify with evil or a murderer or a thief. Oh, by the way, we all know what a murderer is. A murderer is someone who harbors bitterness in their, in their heart and their mind towards someone else that if they could get away with it, they might take that person out. Anybody had road rage here? Okay. Is that, it, it, look, he's saying, look at, you, you, can, you can be murderous in your attitude towards somebody. But then he says, now he's, now he's meddling by using this word. Don't be a troublesome meddler. You know, I, I, I would say probably all of us have been a little busybody with somebody one time. Do you ever get in someone's business or life where you really you haven't been given permission to talk to them about that or get involved in their life or try to tell them what to do or not to do that or how to do it? He says, some of you are meddling. You're, you're, just, you're just a busybody. And, and what's really important, you're not all about. You're about things that aren't important. And he says, don't, don't be that way. And that's where I put it. I guess I didn't do this right either. Don't burn yourself. Now, what I meant by that is if it's getting hot in here, and if you've ever been by a fire, and our family loved camping as we were taking our kids through their lives as young children and then into their teenage years, we'd love to go camping. We would always build fires. But it didn't really matter how old they were. You had to remind them, don't get too close to the fire. Why? Because you're going to get, you get burned. And that's what he's saying here. Look, sometimes, again, the only reason you can really blame anybody is looking at yourself. You got too close to the fire. And really, any time we fall to temptation, often it's not just immediate. We've just gotten a little bit too close, too close, too close, and then it, we fell over. And he's just saying, don't do that. Don't be involved in things that are going to ruin your life. But Peter goes on, and after verse 15, he gets to verse 16. Some of you are still with me, all right? And he says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Now, when God demonstrates his glory, it's like in a Shekinah glory. It's, he, he manifests himself in just a, an amazing way. You can't, you, can't, you can't argue with the presence of God. It's just supernatural. Now, when 
God glorify, when we glorify God, what we do is we just simply display who he is. When, when we live lives that are above all, be firm in love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins and we live that out and we do because of Jesus, that glorifies God, right? Because people can see God's love in us. When we are thankful and grateful people, we acknowledge who, how good God is and the goodness of God is displayed to other people and we glorify him that way. And all kinds of, when we manifest or display God in our life, that's when we glorify him. But what he, what he challenges here, however, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. And I'm thinking, why did you throw that in? Do you ever do that when you read the Bible? Go, where, where did that come from, man? I mean, ashamed, what do you mean not be ashamed? Well, I'm gonna give you my best pitch on this. I'm thinking, you know, to be ashamed is to experience dishonor, right? You, 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 have, you have dishonored yourself. You, you have brought a, a negative viewpoint of who you are. Your reputation has been ruined. You, you, you are just embarrassed by what you've done, whatever it might be. Now, as he was writing to some sincere Christians, and particularly at times very sensitive Christians, you ever ever met a real sincere, sensitive Christian? I'm not a particularly sensitive Christian. I just want to let you know, okay? But a real sensitive Christian, you know, they have, they have a conscience that is that is very, uh, what's the word I want to use? Very uh, um, um, sensitive. Okay, sensitive. All right. In other words, what happens there is that that they can they can easily feel bad about how they're doing and what they've done and, and feeling like they don't really measure up to, to God's standard, not your standard, but God's standards are well. And they, they go, oh man, I, I brought, you know, they just feel bad about themselves because they feel ashamed. And, and it's quite possible, he was writing to some sensitive Christians in the midst of all other types of Christians here. He said, look it, when you suffer, there is a, there is a temptation to feel that you, you deserve what you're getting, right? Anybody feel that at times? Man, I'm getting what I deserve. I, I, and and, and I, am, I am getting God's punishment and judgment on my life right now. And, and I, I just feel like I'm just a bad follower of Jesus. And I, and I think some part of this in here say, look, I want you to understand, okay, that when, when you're going through difficult times, it isn't always your fault. It, it, it isn't something you have directly done. And, and really, if you want a whole book that kind of describes that, just read the whole book of Job. They basically told Job in the, through much of that book that you're getting what you deserve. And they were trying to shame him into repentance. Now, we ought to have a repentant heart. We ought to have a humble heart. But Job, at this point... There wasn't anything he did to get the suffering that he experienced. And, and so sometimes, I, I want you to understand, as, as he was writing, look at, even when you feel overwhelmed, it's not because necessarily you've done something. You have been doing it for the, the name of Christ. So don't take that as, as personal shame when you are punished. I mean, most of us, if we were put in jail today or tomorrow, we would feel a little what? Shame, right? I don't want people to know I'm in jail right now. But it's quite possible you could be put in jail for nothing you've done, right? And I think some of that is what he's saying here. But then he goes on, and this is the only time we got left. Is, so I'm just going to say it 
Don't miss what God is doing. And the pause for is be confident. Look at verses 17 through 19 real quickly. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, we'll start right, stop right there. As we think now as God's people, I want to, this is a challenge for the church. As we think about what's wrong out there, the first thing we ought to do before we think about what's wrong out there is to look at what's wrong where? In here. Because that's what God is most concerned about. I mean, I have four children and uh, I did a lot of coaching, all kinds of things. But if you ask me now, when kids acted up, and I was around children all the time, youth all the time, when, when children or youth acted up, who was I most concerned about who was acting up? My children, right? And so that's how God is. He's looking. I know there's a lot wrong out there, but I'm concerned about how my children, how my people are acting. But then he does go on and he says this, uh, and what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, it, it took a lot for Jesus to bring you into faith. He, you might not have known that, but he went to the cross and he, he did everything he could to draw you to himself. And he says, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? And sometimes people don't respond to the message of Jesus until they've gone through a lot of suffering. Until they hit bottom, they don't look where? They don't look up. But then he says about this, I want you to understand, for those who hit bottom and never look up, it's going to be even worse for them. And we don't have time to look at that, but you want to look at a cross-reference, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And he speaks very plainly about that. As people are drawn to him, there are those who refuse that and there's judgment coming. But then he says this, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And I just want to focus on this. As far as don't miss out on what God is doing, then how you don't miss out on what God is doing is entrust yourself to him. Entrust yourself, your souls, to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And we won't miss out on what God is doing. And earlier in that, he talked about the will of God. When we are committed to the will of God, we are committed to doing what is right because that's what God is all about, to do his will and do what is right. And entrust is a banking term. It's the idea of making a deposit to someone you fully trust. If you were going to loan money to someone you knew would not pay it back and use it in a harmful way, that would not be a very entrusting, wise choice. But he's, what he's saying here, in a, in a world that sometimes you can't understand what God is doing or what he's not doing, I want you to understand that you can trust him. You can make a deposit. There's going to be a great return. A great return. Because he is faithful. Then he uses a term here, interesting enough, it's only used in 1 Peter. What is used here is the word creator. In the New Testament, God being known as a creator is only used here in, in a specific language. So the one who started it all and the one who's going to end it all, he can be entrusted. So trust your life in him. So what's the point this morning? What's, what's the so What? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you prepared for anything that might come? Don't be surprised. Don't lose your source of joy. Don't forget the work of the Spirit in your life. Don't be burned by your own choices that draw you too close to the fire. You don't have to be ashamed. 
But do be focused and don't miss out on what God is doing. Let's pray. Father, there, there are times when it gets hot out there. there. There are times when the temperature does rise. But Father, when it happens, we have a source, a person to run to. And Father, I would just really pray for whatever we're going through or what we will go through, whatever opportunities that we do have to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, when we think about opportunities to, to show Jesus to others, that we might do it with eagerness. Because when you return, we'll see you face to face and experience the fullness of what it means and what it's meant to, to know you and to follow you. Father, there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you or online, we pray that they might make that step. In a broken world, there's only one who can, can fix it, and that's the Lord Jesus. And so we admit our need and turn from our sin. We believe that Jesus died and rose again on, uh, on our behalf from the cross. And Father, we, we really want today to commit to follow you as our Lord and our God for your sake and for your glory so that people can see the goodness of God. And we praise in Jesus' name, amen.